I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. My guest is Victoria Thyssen Homer. Victoria is a former teacher, education scholar, and the author of Learning to Connect, Relationships, Race, and Teacher Education. Victoria, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Education is a subject of great interest to me, and I especially enjoyed the cross-section of stories and interviews you share in the book from the training faculty and teacher trainees to the students in their classrooms. Thank you. So to begin with, learning to connect, what is it about our system of education and teacher training that creates a need for teachers to learn how to connect with students in our schools? I think there's a few factors that sort of influence the phenomenon that we're experiencing now. And one of them is that there's so much focus on test scores and advancing test scores that it sort of reduces that human element of education that perhaps some people were accustomed to before. So when you're constantly trying to improve test scores, students are treated more like robots or treated more like widgets in a factory that you're trying to improve their specification. And because of that, teachers have to actively combat what's become a very dominant phenomenon in focusing on these test scores. So I think that's one factor. I think another factor is that we often assume that relationality is innate in folks, that people just know how to connect with others. And I think that that's true for some people, but I don't think that that's true for all people. And especially today, when we become more isolated from one another and more divided politically or more divided based on other embodied differences or perceived differences like race, class, gender, sexuality, things of that nature, that we tend to operate in a more self-focused manner. And so I think it's important for teachers to have support understand and connect with people that are different from them or that they perceive are different from them. And you present a surprising and interesting statistic that the overwhelming majority of teachers are white and Mm -hmm. the majority of students are now of color. Yeah, 82% of our teaching force is white. 
um, and about 76% of them are women, and over 50% are people of color, and about 50% are male, obviously. And we have students today that are empowered to sort of display their sexuality, their gender identity in different ways than perhaps teachers are accustomed to. So there's a number of different factors of identity. And on top of that, you have class and socioeconomic status and also disability. A number of students are presenting with disabilities that maybe we didn't recognize before. And that's something also that's important to understand. So if teaching wasn't already challenging enough... Yes, absolutely. Teaching is incredibly, incredibly challenging as a profession. And part of that is because it's like psychology, right? If you're if you're a therapist or a psychologist and you have one client at a time, you focus intently on that one client. But with teaching, and this is a metaphor that I've drawn from David Cohen, an amazing professor who recently passed away, but he talks about how teachers have 30 clients at a time that they're trying to serve. And they have to keep all their individual needs and interests and goals in their mind at the same time. It's not an easy job by any measure, for sure. But relationships with students can certainly help. So I would love for you to tell us about your teacher training and why you became a teacher and also your experience as a child in school. Sure. I think that's where it all begins, right, is back when I was a child in school. And... When I was a child, when I started kindergarten and first grade, I started at the local elementary school near my house, which was a very directive, didactic kind of elementary program where you sort of sit back and the teacher presents you with worksheets and tells you what to do and students are supposed to sort of obey and be quiet. And for me, my parents had recently been divorced. I had asthma as a kid. I felt a lot of anxiety in this situation. And so my response to this was to somehow, and I don't know how I did this, but somehow evoke an asthma attack to get out of class. And so I ended up in the nurse's office most of the time. I would go there maybe twice a week in first grade. And my parents became very alarmed by this phenomenon, and they moved me to another public school down the road, which was an experimental public school. They really practiced this progressive kind of education where we were in mixed-level classrooms, and we got to really connect with the material and the teachers genuinely displayed care for us and it was a much more creative and relational experience for me and I stopped having asthma attacks at school no longer needed to escape to the nurse's office and I stayed there through eighth grade and that really cemented my passion for education that the way that we connect with students that the way that we teach them and allow them to display their own creativity in school can affect so much from your health even to your sense of connection and belonging in school. And from there, I went to a traditional high school, which I sort of rejected because I I finally got grades. And so I just played the game, and it was sort of a hollow experience in many ways. But I did have some excellent teachers along the way that helped keep me afloat. And then studied education in college and English and loved education. I really felt compelled by what I was learning about the education system. And, you know, one of the things that I was learning about were the vast disparities between affluent schools and lower-income schools and the way in which white students had access to high-quality teachers who were better paid and better supported and had better resources. And students in urban areas, predominantly students of color, had less access to those resources. And so it was really not a level playing field by any measure. And that made me want to be a teacher. And I decided to go through UCLA's teacher education program, which is an equity-focused teacher education program that 
centralizes what's called culturally responsive teaching, and that's a kind of teaching that allows teachers to learn how to connect with students across racial and cultural differences and how to serve them based on where they might be coming from with humility instead of, you know, paternalism. And so I was really fortunate to go through this program. It was an incredibly thorough program, very thoughtful and hands-on, and I learned so much. And so when I went into the classroom, I taught at a large Title I high school in central Los Angeles that had just opened. I started my teaching career with the school, and we kind of learned together. The school definitely went through some learning development along the way, as I did, especially in my first year. But the students, I just sort of fell in love with all of them. They were just wonderful human beings that, you know, the freshmen, when I first started, were squirrely and, you know, trying to figure out who they were. But they were so passionate and idealistic and driven in so many ways and they came from many of them came from backgrounds that were so different from my own and that they had experienced challenges that were so different from those I had experienced but some of them were similar some of them were children of divorce and I just loved that connection piece of it it just really made the experience for me meaningful and everything that I did to connect with them came back to me tenfold asking them to write me letters to which I responded writing them letters you know, their birthday or Christmas, asking them to do assignments about themselves that helped me learn about them, calling home to their parents to praise them and talk to their parents or greeting them at open houses and things of that nature. It all came back to me because students were then more engaged in my class and they would share more of who they were, which I learned a lot from. And so that inspired me later as I was, you know, getting a doctorate to think about these things and think about how important both my teacher education experience was, but also that relational piece was to my own development and growth, and likely to theirs as well. So how long did you teach, and why did you stop teaching? I taught for four years in Los Angeles Unified, and I taught during the Great Recession. So one thing that happened in L.A. during that time was that they issued thousands of reduction in force layoffs in reverse seniority order. And I received my first layoff notice in my second year of teaching. And it triggered some feelings of instability for me and made me think about the forces beyond the classroom that were affecting my classroom. I mean, students at that time walked out and protested these rifts because there were 40 of us at school that received them in 2009. And they were really upset about what they felt were some of their best teachers being on the chopping block for the sake of budget cuts. And those rifts ended up being rescinded that year. But I received another reduction of force layoff in 2011 when it didn't look like we were going to have any hope of having our layoffs rescinded. And I had applied to doctoral programs that year because I saw one cohort of students through from freshman to senior year. They were sort of, I called them my babies. They were just wonderful, these wonderful students I had in advisory and who I had taught in English every year, too. And as they moved on, I started thinking about, well, if I went to study education, could I have a greater impact on the system from a distance? And so it happened that a lot of my colleagues, my good friends as well, who were teaching at the school, also received a reduction in force layoff. Theirs were not rescinded, and they ended up becoming long-term substitutes in their former positions for the next year where they didn't receive sick days and didn't get paid over the summer, had to go on unemployment. And we're in this really, really difficult situation. And I had this opportunity to get a fully funded doctorate, and I took it. When I got to my doctoral program, 
one of the first things I learned was that the most impact in the education system is the teacher, that the teacher has more difference than any, and in student achievement and growth and development than any other factor the school could control. And I really began to rethink my decision to leave the classroom, but the factors that were present at the time drove me from the classroom. And, and I think that lots of teachers today are experiencing that too with COVID, with being forced into classrooms where they could very well contract a life-threatening disease. I think the outside factors are what tend to push teachers out, but the internal factors, the, the rewards with students are what keep teachers in because it's so rewarding as a profession. And so I still, I still have this push and pull where some days I'm still definitely tempted to go back to the classroom, but I'm trying to work on it from the outside now. So how did this particular project begin that became this book? I think I, I was feeling sort of adrift for a couple of years as I was working toward this doctorate, taking my basic classes and not really sure what I wanted to focus on. And I would go back to L.A., to see my former students. I would have reunions with them multiple times a year and see my colleagues and my friends from LA who were teachers. And every time I went back to school and back to LA, I just realized that what was most important to me was relationships. And that's what kept me afloat as a teacher and that inspired me still. And when I began to look at how teachers are prepared to form these relationships across programs, I learned that what I experienced at UCLA actually isn't very common that this focus on teacher-student relationality and cultural responsive teaching is not actually as common as it should be. And so I began to think about, okay, what are other programs doing? And wanted to begin studying that to understand that better. And so I chose to focus on residency programs because UCLA is almost like a residency program. You spend a lot of time in practice. And residency programs are this reform du jour in education that I actually think will stick because there's a lot of merit to it putting teachers in the field with a mentor teacher in sort of an apprenticeship for an entire year before they even become teachers of record and allowing coursework to revolve around that experience. And so it's a really powerful model. And so I thought, if I study residency programs, I've got to see relationships represented because it's such a huge part of practice that there has to be coursework around this. And so I looked at two very, very different programs. One was a no excuses program, which focused more on sort of discipline and a more controlled model of education, primarily for students of color in low income schools. And they had a whole course on relationships, but it was, it was unique and very different. And then the other program I focused on was a progressive independent school residency program that was built around this idea of connecting with people and dialogue. And so I entered these two programs knowing I was going to see relationships represented in teacher education, but from very different perspectives. Yeah, very different perspectives indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So considering that you spent a year studying these two programs, perhaps longer, how did you feel about the way these two different residency programs approached relationships? Yeah, I, you know, it was interesting. As a researcher, you try your best to sort of be objective and to stand back from all that's happening. And while I was conducting the first year of the study, I was pregnant with my first child. And I sat back in these two different programs. And the ways in which others interacted with me as the researcher 
was in some ways indicative of their larger relational approach. So while I was sitting in the back of this large no excuses classroom, I was sort of this anonymous person who blended into the scenery. And a few of the faculty would be like, oh, congratulations, like we're excited, you know, about you being pregnant, welcome, let us know if you need anything. So it was congenial, but I was certainly more of an anonymous figure in that experience. And that's sort of how I attempted to be in both programs. But the other program was small and intimate, and they were just so warm and inclusive for everybody that it was actually pretty hard for me to remain in the back. People would come up and be like, hey, how's it going? What are you doing? I got hugs from the residents and the director. I mean, it was just such a different experience just being present in these programs as I was getting ready to bring life into the world. And thinking about how they connect. And of course, the No Excuses program is very focused on outcomes. It was focused on test scores, right? How do we advance the academic achievement of low-income students of color? Well, we need to do it in this very, very instrumental way. And they focused on relationships as a means to an end. I call them instrumental relationships. And in order to do that, they taught teachers these discrete moves. One of the most memorable is the sneeze, where they say teachers should remember little nuggets about students, like a distinctive sneeze, and integrate that into conversations with students so they feel seen by their teachers in order to engender trust among those students so that students will work hard and behave in line with what the teachers are asking them to do. So sort of superficial relationships to improve student behavior. And the other program, the progressive one, was very much a holistic and reciprocal kind of relationship where there was dialogue, where I, as the observer, couldn't even sit in the back anonymously, that I was brought into this dialogue as well, that it was everyone as a whole human being was seen as who they were, and that that was really important to the learning process, that in seeing students and understanding them, you could design curriculum and instruction that responds to them as whole people that you can invite them into dialogue to co-construct that learning experience alongside the teacher. And the outcomes of that are profoundly different, right? In one situation, students are learning to become these passive receptacles, that they're learning to be obedient, to take what people tell them and perform. In the other program, students are learning to critically think and self-advocate. They're learning to become leaders that feel entitled to shape not only their own educational experiences, but their life experiences, and perhaps society as well. And so I emerged from these programs thinking, as I was in the second year, I I had my daughter and was following teachers into the field, thinking, yeah, I couldn't imagine sending my child into a school where she would be taught to follow. And that was a really sort of profound human experience for me as I observed in these programs and trying my best to stay as distant as I could, but as I analyzed this data, as I lived it, I had this definite response to the two different programs. Yeah, I have to admit, I cringed during (laughs) your descriptions of the way the no excuses model worked and the way they presented this kind of whitewashed, benevolent notion of navigating Mm -hmm. the dominant power structures and language of our society and talking about it in terms of it being a positive way to address social justice and racial issues, Mm -hmm. which I found pretty ironic. Yeah. (laughs) And the faculty and the people who led the program sounded so upbeat and well-meaning, and yet 
so clueless in a way. Yes. Yes. I think that's an accurate description. It's interesting. You know, I think there's this talk about what is social justice, right? And some scholars have suggested that there's actually a few different stages or concepts of what social justice means. And the first is just individual achievement, like that the individual is able to navigate existing social structures. But the broader definitions of social justice have to do with gaining the tools to help transform the system, to improve it for all people, not just a few exceptional individuals who manage to navigate the current system. And so the No Excuses program is really looking at this through an individualistic perspective. And instead of addressing broader social change, it was more of a, let's just let individuals navigate the current status quo. That was sort of there. Let's teach them the tools of dominant society so that they can navigate and not challenge or criticize or interrogate dominant society, but just just navigate it. So it is sort of a conflicting definition of social justice where you're not actually changing anything or trying to achieve broader justice. You're just trying to get a few people to move forward within those structures. Mm-hmm. So I would love for you to talk about your approach to this project and what you hoped to accomplish from it. I wanted to tell these stories in what's called portraiture, which is Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot's method that blends art and science. So instead of telling these stories in traditional academic prose or in traditional ways, I wanted to have them unfold in stories so that anyone could pick up this book and be transported into these different worlds to see and feel and understand what was going on in these worlds so that they could make up their own mind. And part of this is sort of shining a light back at these programs and depicting what's present, but with a gentle hand that's sort of guiding you through to help you make sense and understand what's going on in these worlds. And I want it to to be sort of a call to action, this, this sense that our human nature, our human beings, right, deserve acknowledgement, recognition, understanding, and care, and not in superficial ways but in deeply human ways. And what we're seeing in schools today, and I think that the no excuses and progressive approaches, while idiosyncratic in some ways, are actually more representative of broader trends in education throughout our society. And I think we're seeing that in the way that students of color are disproportionately disciplined and are not having access to teachers who they feel understand, see, and care about them. And so I wanted this to be sort of a call for people to understand that what is most important for our students today is to feel seen, to feel cared for, to feel like they can shape their own education. Because if we want to build a better future, we need to have students who are able to engage with problems, 21st century problems and ideas, and to help connect with others across lines of perceived difference like politics, like race, And I think if we form those connections in school, we're going to help bring people together. It's a start. And we need to start somewhere. I mean, we think of education as the great equalizer or the place where social change begins. But the way that schools are operating right now is much more of a form of social reproduction. We're essentially preparing them to go back into the roles from which they came. And that's the problem that we need to correct. And I think part of that solution starts with relationships and seeing and honoring all people in schools, not just affluent white kids in more progressive settings. So we spoke about some of the shortcomings of the no excuses model. 
And the progressive residency teaching model is really good about relationality, but it has its own shortcomings, doesn't it? Particularly in the way it addresses the issue of racial diversity. Absolutely. So that was one of those things that came out of this is that you have these teachers who are trained in this really reciprocal relationship, and you have this African American director in the progressive program who truly cares about serving students of color, but what happens at the end is that all of the teachers from this program end up going on to mostly white and mostly affluent schools, bringing their tools for reciprocal relationships to other mostly white affluent students. And so one of the reasons this happens in this program it has to do with progressive education's history with racism. And progressive independent schools and progressive schools generally were founded, you know, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, purely as a means for students who had the means and resources to escape the milieu of public education. And so parents, mostly white parents, were taking their, their children out of public schools and putting them in these progressive schools. And that continued around desegregation, right? So, oh, you know, parents were saying, I don't want my kids to go to school with black and brown children, so I'm going to put them in this progressive school that has mostly white kids where we can pay for small class sizes and have these affluent peers around them. And I think... You see that today, even though this progressive school in the study I call Xanadu, even though Xanadu is really focused on diversity in name, the actual practice is that you maybe have one or two students of color per class, and they're often students who come from affluent backgrounds. Only 17% of the school is on any kind of financial aid of any kind. And so you have like, you know, professors, children, wealthy professional children but you're really lacking in multiple measures of diversity at the school. And the result is that the residents that are prepared at this program come out with a comfort in working with white and affluent students because that's what they're used to, but they don't really feel comfortable serving students of color because none of their coursework or fieldwork really deals explicitly with that. And because so much of their core training is at Xanadu, they come to love this very unique experience where they only have 16 students in the class, teachers get free lunch every day, there's all kinds of other advantages where teachers aren't expected to serve students after hours, they don't have to worry about test scores, they have a really active parent council because parents have the time and wherewithal because they're not working multiple jobs to be really engaged in the education process. And so they come to sort of love this experience. Those who think about teaching in public schools, when they go into public, some of them choose to go into public schools for their spring teaching placement in the program, they walk out thinking, you know, what I've learned about public schools is that I don't actually want to work in a public school. And the public school placements are in mostly white and affluent public schools as well. So I think that's maybe one of the program's primary shortcomings is that it just can't escape this overwhelming whiteness that starts the program. And even when the director attempts to provide a little bit more context or encourage students to think a little bit more about this, the residents are also mostly white, and they tend to sort of react negatively to her encouragement on these ends. So it feels ironic, because it starts with so much promise on these fronts and has such great ideals when it comes to serving students across racial and cultural differences, but doesn't actually deliver in that respect in many ways, in part because of its setting. 
Yeah, it's quite a dilemma. I went to mostly public schools. And even though I have been very interested in education and actually seriously considered becoming a teacher, I never wanted to have to teach in a public school because hmm. it seemed like it would be like being in a straitjacket. <sighs> so, you mean from the perspective of not being able to teach what you wanted? Or from exactly. the perspective of, yeah. Yeah, and the way I wanted it and to have the freedom to engage students in exactly those ways that these progressive schools have the freedom to do. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I don't quite understand is why our public school systems are so locked into this kind of antiquated industrial model of education and why they aren't more receptive to the progressive model. I think this goes back to test scores in some ways. Like you had A Nation at Risk, this really prominent publication come out in the early 80s. And that was sort of saying, on test scores, the U.S. is failing. We need to improve these test scores. And so that sort of started a lot of the standardized testing craze and started the evaluation in numbers of our students. And that was only reinforced and exacerbated by the No Child Left Behind movement, which actually attached carrots and sticks to school standardized test score performance and to students and really broke down students into categories and looked at who was succeeding and who wasn't on these standardized test scores. And in one way, it's useful to have that data, but the way in which we make very big decisions based on that and judge entire schools and systems and students and teachers by these test scores, which we know in some ways reflect the socioeconomic status of students. I mean, test scores reflect that more than they've consistently reflected anything else. It inhibits what schools feel able to do, and independent schools are not beholden to standardized test scores at all. They don't have to administer them. And so they're not responsible for that. And so you're able to have progressive education in these spaces. The very progressive school that I went to, which was a public school, when I was in elementary school, has become increasingly more didactic and increasingly more standardized as a result of standardized tests. So that school is a sad story. They've kowtowed to the pressure of these numbers, trying to make sure that that parents want to choose these schools. Because parents, as parents, we are the people who are largely shaping what happens in schools. We choose to send our children to schools, and largely parents are saying, I want to send my children to these blue-ribbon schools that have good test scores. That's what they look for. What are their test scores like? Okay, let me send this child to the test score school. So I think that's largely what's happening is that we are judging schools on test scores, both educators and teachers. And in doing so, we are taking away from the humanistic and experiential pieces of learning that make learning worth living. And I think that's part of what we're seeing happening because you can't test relationships. You're not going to see that reflected. I mean, certainly there is evidence to suggest that more teacher-student relationships and more meaningful teacher-student relationships result in better student achievement, better sense of belonging, engagement in school, and even outcomes beyond that. But it's not tested, so it's not taught. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of why we're seeing this. Yeah. Thinking about this, it seems as though our public school system reflects the worst of the no-excuses model with none of the benefits of it, mm -hmm. which there are some. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation. I mean, the No Excuses program 
is sort of an exaggeration of what public schools are trying to do. But in exaggerating it, they're extending the school day so that students are spending more time in school. They're making sure that teachers are available to students, that they have to respond to them via email or on the phone. They're making sure that their teachers are calling parents, which is another really valuable thing. It's all about the test scores, but they're doing it so systematically that in doing that, they are improving some pieces of education that you don't see in public schools. You don't see these kind of aspects being present. So there, yeah, I think you're right to say that there are some benefits. And when you look at test scores, this approach works because no excuses schools, one study recently showed that no excuses schools are the only charter school that statistically significantly improves student test scores. But when you look at their life outcomes, those gains fall apart. It doesn't actually improve life outcomes, but it does improve test scores and it does improve college going, not necessarily completion, but college going. And so that's not even happening in our public schools writ large. And by state, it's very different. From my home state of Arizona, we have one of the lowest high school graduation rates in the country. And I think part of it reflects some of the shortcomings of school is. But that being said, there are some wonderful public schools and districts that are trying to counteract these trends, but they're really hamstrung because so much of how they are evaluated goes back to the test scores. Yeah, it's a nightmare. So (laughs) getting into racism and white privilege, which Mm -hmm. are such touchy issues for most white people, I would love for you to talk about what you refer to as racial competence and why it's important, and how to bring that element into teacher training, particularly for white people. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. There's discussion about the need to diversify the teaching force, and I think that's absolutely necessary. We, We really need to draw in more racially diverse teachers, and it does improve student outcomes. But we also need to prepare the white teachers in our programs right now to better serve and connect with and understand students of color. And that's what racial competence is. It's knowing and understanding that these students are coming from a different background than your own. And recognizing that not through a deficit lens, not thinking, oh, you know, this student is coming from this background. They're not going to be able to perform or they're going to be disobedient or whatever, whatever the deficit perspective is. It's looking at these students as full human beings and trying to understand their background, learning about their history, not assuming that you know, but learning about where they come from, learning about their culture from what they share, but also doing your own research and understanding it's employing culturally responsive strategies so that all children in your class are able to succeed. It's connecting with their families. It's understanding their funds of knowledge. That's a term from Louise Mole, what they bring to the classroom. These forms of knowledge that are not dominant forms of knowledge necessarily, but are also really valuable. For example, most of my students when I taught were bilingual, and I'm not. I speak pieces of other languages, but I don't speak a whole another language. And that ability is incredibly important and valuable. It's not something that people always see, or that they're actually really good with younger children. Many of them have taken care of their younger siblings, and that that's an incredible skill and what that requires to care for these younger children, that they have these communities and these families that are incredibly caring for one another. It's looking at people through a different lens, but also racial Confidence involves looking at yourself and understanding the systems of privilege that you've benefited from, where you've come from, where you might have internalized racism, because we all do, right? But being able to watch for that, to understand when that comes up, and instead of castigating yourself or, you know, dwelling in guilt or fragility, which takes us away from the experience and, and into ourselves, it's recognizing that and saying, okay, I'm going to choose not 
to fall prey to these biases. Instead, I'm going to choose something different. I'm going to see the human being before me in all of their glory, and I'm going to respond to that. And so that's sort of what teachers need to learn. And it's not an easy process. This requires a lot of deep internal work that programs are often hesitant to get into because it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And it's necessary for teachers to think about this. And it makes you a better person as well. It's not just something that's solely for teaching. It's something that helps you to understand yourself and understand society and have more empathy as a human. So I think racial competence is absolutely necessary. One of the things I loved about some of the stories you told about your experience observing the progressive school in Xanadu and the residential teacher training there was the inclination and the openness toward engaging in potentially uncomfortable conversations and discussions with students. And that's something that can be incredibly difficult for people, particularly people of privilege, who feel very secure and safe in their privilege and terrified of stepping outside of that comfort zone. Yeah. So what does it take to get people to explore that discomfort zone so that they can engage with people of different races and cultures and cultivate and develop what you call reciprocal relationships, respectful and empathetic reciprocal relationships with students of color and different cultures? I think it begins with the internal work, right? It begins with the reflection on this. It begins, and that's one thing the Progressive Program did very well. They definitely stimulated reflection in every way. They're constantly reflecting. They're reading books that challenge them to think. They were reading White Like Me by Tim Wise, which brought up some conflicting issues in a lot of the residents. They lost opportunity in that program to actually reflect upon and engage with that work in ways that I think would have been meaningful. But stimulating that through literature, through both fiction and nonfiction that engages with these issues as a start. I think another part of it is to think about all of our intersectional identities. Like each of us has something. We all have experienced adversity in some way. And that adversity could be because of our appearance. It could be because of our class where we're coming from. It could be because we have a disability that's hidden or not, our sexual identity, our gender identity, our socioeconomics, whether we had parents who had the wherewithal to support us with our education or didn't, divorce, religion. There's so many different factors that we all experience. And if we can think about things in our own life and and deal with some of our own history, then we can think about the ways in which we are all intersectional people. We have so many different factors going on in our own lives. And in order to become the people that we are today, we have to engage with the discomfort around our own issues first. Once we have engaged around that, our own discomfort, and come to terms with some of that, then it's easier to engage with other uncomfortable ideas because we can relate to them in some way, right? One thing is operating from a place of humility, right? Like, I know about some things. I can say I know a good amount about education, but I don't know a lot about people's lives who are different from my own. And coming to that with an open mind and a place of understanding, like, okay, tell me about that. Let me listen instead of assuming I know. Because uncomfortable conversations are about acknowledging that you don't know everything and that people of color, from a white person's perspective, people of color are the experts in their own experience. 
And they know a lot more about issues of race in society because they are conscious of it every single day. Whereas white folks can live in racial isolation, surrounded by other white people and not have to think about race. And so I think that place of humility, that grappling with your own uncomfortable experiences primes you to be able to have uncomfortable conversations where you listen as opposed to assert. But I think, you know, there's always this defensiveness that we see. When white folks come to these conversations, they immediately want to defend, like, oh, no, I got where I am today by my own hard work. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that I'm white. And that defensiveness is a protective measure that they put in place because they don't want to have to look at their own history or the ways in which maybe it was easier because they were white or they had wealth or they had parents that were together or whatever it is that you want to look at. There are different measures of privilege and simply acknowledging them is a first step. Like, okay, yeah, I did come from this privilege. That is part of how I got here. Now let me listen to what other people's experiences are like. It doesn't have to be contentious if you listen and if you're coming from a humble place as opposed to a defensive place. Those are, those are sort of my thoughts on that, but it's a hard question. Yeah, that's something that I've thought a lot about in the context of teaching in a classroom would be to actually directly invite and engage students to talk about their own experience that was different from my own and really allow them to direct the directions and the information and the conversation itself. And for me or for the teacher to just facilitate and ensure a safe space for that discussion to unfold. And you can do that. When I was teaching in my third year, I taught a book called Always Running, which is by Luis Rodriguez. It's called a gang memoir. It's his experience in a gang. And my students asked for this book, some of them. They wanted to read this book. But I was initially very uncomfortable about this because the other literature I had taught, I knew about, I had background knowledge in, I had done research on. But this was a text that they felt was relevant to their own lives and I knew very little about. And so when I taught that, I sort of had to suspend all semblance of expertise on this topic and be like, what parts of this seem relevant to you? Or, you know, what are you bringing or understanding about this text? Tell me about your own experiences. And they shared so much about what they had experienced that just sort of floored me. I had no idea and I didn't know very much. And so when I entered with this book, I pretty much had to give up any authority <laughs> and let them guide it. I love that. I love that notion of going into a classroom and being humble and recognizing that we're all students in this broader environment. And just because you happen to be up in the front of the classroom doesn't mean that you have to put on this air or mantle of authority. Yeah, and I think that that air or mantle of authority that teachers attempt to project sometimes actually ends up backfiring. It undermines relationships and it serves to divide you from your students. You can certainly maintain some authority and you do that through respect. You garner their respect and their trust and that's how you develop some sense of authority, but it's not an authority based on pretense. It's right. an authority that's earned. Right. And you also write about authenticity in this book. Mm -hmm. And that's a really difficult thing because often, especially new teachers, go into classrooms feeling pretty insecure about their ability to cope with all of the challenges that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So how can teacher trainings really help teachers overcome that 
right from the beginning, or at least enter the classroom with the awareness of the importance of that, or the dynamic that they may be struggling with within themselves to be authentic while they may be kind of quaking in their boots or just, you know, feeling anxious about their ability to accomplish what they really want to do. And it's easy to lose sight of what we really want to do when we're, you know, under stress. Yeah, I I completely understand that feeling of insecurity. I remember being a first-year teacher. I remember student teaching and having that trepidation and that uncertainty about whether I could do it. And, you know, we all compensate in different ways. My way was to wear as professional clothing I could possibly find. I, I like, you can't see me because it's a radio, but I'm 5'1". I have freckles. I am not an intimidating figure by any measure. And so I felt the need to overcompensate based on dressing to the nines as much as I could to look older. So teachers, they do that in metaphorical ways. They put on their armor and they put on armor that ends up being more divisive than it needs to be. The sense of authority, this over-authoritativeness to try to overcompensate. And I think part of the reason that teachers do that is obviously to protect themselves or to overcompensate, but it's also because these programs are telling them that classroom management and control of your students is paramount to the entire endeavor, and that's not true. I think UCLA did me a favor, which at the time I didn't think was a favor, because they did not teach us anything about classroom management, and we complained about that because we went into these classrooms and we were like, what are we doing? How am I going to manage these students? And I tried a whole bunch of different things at first. And since then, they've tried to sort of change some of their preparation to include more responsive forms of classroom management. But what I didn't learn that I think a lot of teachers do learn in their program was that I have to enforce control. And that's what the the No Excuses program is. The teacher is the authority 100% of the time and has to enforce this and always be on guard and control the class and control the students. And that's a problem because in doing that, they have to adopt this personality that's a tension between authenticity and authority not something they talk about. There's this tension between authenticity and authority, and you have to find your balance. But maybe authority is something that we don't think about as an asserted quality, but one that's earned. Authority is something where you connect with your students. You are the teacher, so already you have the stated authority, but you connect with them. You see who they are, and you make it about relationships. And if you're able to connect with and serve and understand and honor your students, they will in turn do the same for you. And that's something that I've experienced repeatedly when I invest in my students. And this even applies to the courses I teach in college. When I invest in my students, they are more likely to invest in the class. And that is classroom management. But you can do it through cooperative learning. You can do it through other ways. And if we teach different ways of managing classroom and focus less on these notions of authority, then I think maybe we'll have less of that blustering, going into classes and trying to control everything. I even experienced that with parents. I'm sure a lot of parents experience that when my kids aren't listening to me. And I am the authority. I'm the parent. <laughs> but it's like when I sort of find a deep breath, release some of my sense of control and let them be who they are, I think I find the most beneficial moments of parenting. You use the term investing in your students. What do you mean by that? Investing in your students, I think, goes a lot of different ways. One is connecting with them, finding out about them, understanding them, finding ways to help serve them, and, and ways that are not just restricted to the classroom. I mean, I had a student in my first year who was doing really well in my class, but she was having 
struggles with her mother. And she said, my mom doesn't think I'm doing well. Would you be willing to write her a letter or call her and just tell her that I'm doing okay? Because she's really hard on me. She doesn't think I'm doing well enough. And so I called her mom and I said, your daughter is wonderful. And she's working so hard in class and I'm so proud of her. You should be too. And the student came to school and was like, my mom and I are connecting. Thanks so much for doing this. It's really helping me. She's seeing me in a different way. I feel like we're finally together. And it was such a small thing for me to do, but it was something she asked me to do. And I was glad to do that. That's just one example of investing or in advocating for students with the principal or the counselor. If they get in trouble for something, but you know that they didn't mean to or their heart is in the right place, it's advocating for them. Or if they get switched out of your class for some error, you, you really want to help them in your class. You know it's about fighting for them to help get them back in your class or whatever it is. There's lots of different ways that teachers can invest in and advocate for students. And that shows care in ways that exceed just the simple standing at the door with a smile on your face and welcoming them into your class every day, which is also important, but it's not enough. So there's also the issue of the practice of teaching and the curriculum that you're using and whether you're creating it yourself, whether you're adapting it from something that you are supposed to work from. How can you best apply whatever curriculum you have to work with to the students you have to work with? This is probably going to sound a little bit seditious, but when I was a teacher, I was supposed to teach this binder. And it was the expository binder or the ninth grade intervention English binder that we were given from the district. And after teaching it for a month, maybe, I just saw how much students checked out. They were not interested in these little discrete pieces. They were not excited by the material. And so eventually I just throughout the binder or I put it in a closet in the back and I didn't look at it again. And a lot of public school teachers can actually get away with that in some ways because there's not that much oversight. And as long as you're teaching them the basics, like if you look at the common core standards, they're ideas and competencies rather than a curriculum. And I taught novels. I taught things that they were excited about, that I was excited about. So then they drew on that excitement. I think there's some flexibility in curriculum that people don't realize that they might have. But if they do have a curriculum that they have to teach, like for example, math teachers have a math book. That's the math book they have. And the same for history teachers. They might completely disagree with the way that history is portrayed in the book, but they have it in front of them. So I think part of it is to approach curriculum from a different way. So maybe that math teacher, instead of doing all of those math problems in the day, they can do one and approach it backwards. We see that in Japan, for example, that they spend a great deal of time looking at one math problem and they do it like inductively instead of deductively so that the students learn the processes as opposed to just how to basically compute things. And if you're that social studies teacher, you have that book in front of you, maybe you bring in a bunch of supplementary material to that book and say, okay, look the way that history is portrayed in this chapter of the book, but then read this article. Where do you think the truth lies? Let's engage. Okay, now let's have a debate. You take this side, you take this side. Let's talk about what is history and how it's constructed. So, and then, you know, English, you bring in novels, science, you can create all sorts of fun experiments. In every subject, there is room to draw upon the curriculum that you've been provided and build upon it, add to it, supplement it, interrogate it, reinvent it. There's always space. As a teacher, we have more control than any other place in school. We are what Lipsky calls the street bureaucrats. So we're the ones that are actually mediating the policies and the curriculum and procedures that are brought down to us. 
So teaching is actually a very powerful position, but we're de-empowered in this society of teacher. Teachers are supposed to be people who just implement what's given to them. And I think that does an incredible disadvantage to teachers and deprofessionalizes them. Teachers are professionals. And when they have the preparation and the knowledge that they can do this, they can do amazing things that inspire students. And it helps students co-create the experience around them. And so I think there's room to invite students to shape that curriculum, too. So we don't have to be so restricted, I don't think. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that you have that seditious spirit, to use your term. (laughs) It reminds me of a book that I'm not sure that I actually read, but I came across many, many years ago, titled Teaching as a Subversive Activity. (laughs) Yes. And I think as a teacher, the responsibility really is in our hands, isn't it? And it's a cop-out to just say, well, I have to teach this. Particularly when you're not inspired, you know your students are falling asleep and will never remember any of it and will probably be turned off to education by it. Yeah, I mean, I know there are some principals who might be really in their teachers' rooms. I mean, like the No Excuses schools, they're so observed and watched that they might get fired if they didn't teach the curriculum. It very well might happen in those schools. And some public schools might have that too. But I think a lot of public schools, you know, teachers operate in this egg crate model. You close your door, you're in your own separate room, your own separate little pod. And what happens in that room is largely unseen and unobserved. And so there is power in that. And there are also issues with that, right? Because teachers should be observed and should have support to help grow and improve. And, you know, obviously negative things can happen in that enclosed space as well. But I think if administrators were also taught to help support teachers to build on and understand curriculum in different ways. I mean, I was really lucky as a teacher because I had administrators who rewarded me for the creativity instead of castigating me for it. And so I don't, I don't know if everybody really has that advantage. And so I have to acknowledge that, that it depends on your administrators. But I think there's a lot of opportunity here for professionals in the classroom to bring that extra bit to their curriculum, to riff on it in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is each individual teacher has the responsibility to find the environment in which they can thrive as well as their students. Yeah, I think that's important. My guest is Victoria Thyssen Homer. Victoria is a former teacher and the author of Learning to Connect, Relationships, Race, and Teacher Education. Somewhere in the book, you have a list of questions that teachers should be asking themselves as they approach teaching. I would love for you to talk about that. Toward the end, I talk about some of the things that teachers should think about. And some of those things include, who am I? Why do I want to teach where I want to teach? And I think that's a really important thing to evaluate. Why are you there? I mean, whenever a white teacher goes into a school serving mostly children of color, I think they have to interrogate, why did I come here? Do I think I'm going to come here to save these students, which is a very paternalistic and outdated notion? Or am I here to humbly offer whatever I can and to learn in the process, right? So I think that's another part of it. I think it's also about learning about empathy and how much do you understand your students? How much Do you understand their parents? How much do you understand about the community that you're serving? That's a really, really important piece because the community shapes students. And I think part of this is also reflecting on your practice. Like, 
okay, how did that lesson go? How did the students respond to it? Let me think about that. Committing to equity and anti-racism, figuring out how to be authentic in the classroom, coming from a humble place, how to care for students. I think care is a really, really important piece of this, and it can't just be academic care, which is important. You need to serve students and help them and be there if they need help with the assignments and to push them academically and believe in them. But also, how are they as human beings? How are they doing? Designing instruction around them and how to create a safe space in your classroom where they feel safe. What do they want in terms of the norms of the classroom? What would they like to see? How can you create cooperative groups where they feel like they have some ability to shape who's in that group, but also are placed with people who can help push them? Like, There's all sorts of things that teachers can do to build relationships, not just between themselves and students, but among students as well. Yes, and that's reminding me that school often, well, for me anyway, school was much more about learning the social ropes and learning emotional resiliency out in the world, you know, in relation to other students as well as teachers, Mm -hmm. you know, authority figures and peers, which is a reflection on our experience in life in general. So, Mm -hmm. So in a way... The academic part of school for me was fairly minor. I mean, I I came from a pretty well-educated family. We were very poor, but very well-informed, very well-read. So for me in school, I don't feel like I really learned much academically so much as I learned about relationships. Yeah. And that's beautiful that you were able to get that out of school. And everyone should. And that's what a lot of people remember when asked about their schooling experiences or their favorite teacher or their least favorite teacher. What they remember is the emotional side of it. They remember the teachers who saw them and cared for them, or they remember the teachers that inflicted deep emotional harm through some either an unintentional or intentional fight against them. They remember connecting with their friends. They remembered how things were established when they felt they belonged And these relationships are core to our identity and how we see the world around us. And so I think that's important to acknowledge. It's not just about academics, but these relationships, when done well, can facilitate academics. They can reduce some of the things that cause us to feel separated and disengaged and invite us into learning in meaningful ways. And based on my limited experience of a very wide range of teachers, many of those teachers seem to be completely disconnected from their own past experience of being students, unless they were trying to exact a kind of paying forward revenge upon their students, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which is possible, I suppose. I find it hard to imagine that somebody would want to go into teaching to do that, even if it is just yeah. subconscious. Yeah, I mean, they call that the apprenticeship of observation. And that's what Dan Lordy called it. And it's this idea that we teach as we were taught. Mm. And that that's such a powerful force, unless you have an intervention like a powerful teacher education program that interrupts that. And that's what we want to see. We want to see that disrupted because a lot of us are educated in the industrial model of schools, the model that Paulo Freire would say is like the banking model of education, that these teachers are depositing information into passive receptacles rather than inviting these human beings to co-construct their experience of understanding and developing knowledge. So 
I think part of it is this replication that we're seeing taking place. And that's why we need teacher education to step in and to say, reflect heavily on where you came from and where you learned and how you learned. And let's see if we can change that. Let's interrupt those processes. And having a really good teacher can do that as well. Definitely. Yeah, really good teachers do that. They reflect on themselves and they bring new things to the classroom that students are not used to. And they stand out because of it. Mm -hmm. And they inspire things in students that perhaps was unimaginable for a student in relation to previous teachers. Yeah, I mean, I think the students have, they have this in them, but they need teachers who see it, right? They need teachers who can invite them to share these pieces of themselves so that the students feel like that's an important piece of their future. So this seems to be a core element of student-teacher relationships is providing an environment for students to really thrive in the classroom. Absolutely. That safe and inclusive learning environment is so important. Where students feel safe with their peers and safe with the teacher, they are more likely to express who they are. And expressing who you are is part of learning. Exactly. And it's an ongoing process. It never ends. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We're still doing it today, right? Right. Teachers, hopefully, are continually learning. Yeah, I think that's another part of the humility. You can't assume you go in knowing everything. You learn. I mean, teaching, I learned more through teaching than I did in my doctoral program. (laughs) At least about human life, you know, Mm -hmm. and society. So, I'm curious if there was any particular thing that you learned from this project that was unexpected or that you weren't even aware of going into it? And also how it relates to the state of our society these days? I didn't expect to see social reproduction through relationships happening. I didn't expect that. We think about the way in which knowledge is reproductive. Like Jeannie Anion had this famous study back in the 80s that talked about how The working class school was essentially teaching these students to receive knowledge and not critically think and become automatons. The middle class school was teaching them to have some more ownership over that, but really to just think about how if they did what the teacher said, they could achieve in society. And then the affluent professional school was teaching students about how to create their own knowledge and how to work with others. And then the executive elite school was focused on learning the knowledge that you need in order to dominate and compete and tell others what to do, essentially. And so there was, like, the knowledge and the different kinds of things they were learning in their classrooms becoming increasingly critical in content. But one thing that sort of came out of this for me was the way in which that happens through relationships. Are we teaching students to think and engage and participate and to lead through our relationships with them. Teachers are authority figures that spend more time with students than their own parents do often as they're going through school. Those interactions shape who students become and how they see the world. So if you have that kind of empowering and thoughtful, meaningful experience with teachers, that shapes society. But if you have a situation in which you are taught to be obedient and to listen to your mostly white authority figures, then that's positioning and conditioning students for subservience, for factories, for basic service jobs. It's not teaching them to think. And I think that's one really important thing that 
came out for me was just the way in which relationships can be reproductive or the lack of relationships can be because we are so very shaped by how we connect with others and how we are seen by others. And so that needs to become part of the conversation about education, maybe central to the conversation. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were talking about that, that it's the actual relationship dynamics that actually occur in the classroom Mm -hmm. during the learning process with the teachers. That's really the core, not not the content of what's being transmitted, but the actual energetic, socio-emotional dynamic of it. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. I mean, we think about our society today, we're so divided. Exactly. Right? And there's so much infighting and people feel so alienated. How can we change that? And maybe part of the change starts in school. Mm-hmm. I keep going back to thinking that it has to, well... Obviously, it has to start at home as well. But as you said, many kids spend more time with their teachers than they do with their parents. Mm-hmm. So school is such a critical place for that to be happening, that kind of relational engagement. Definitely. And I keep going back to reflecting that that's the only way that this world has a chance of surviving, it seems. I think it's definitely an important piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Well... I've really enjoyed this conversation. I have too. Thank you so much. My guest has been Victoria Thyssen-Homer. She's a former teacher, an education scholar, and the author of this new book, Learning to Connect, Relationships, Race, and Teacher Education. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thanks again for having me on the show. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free, and that's what the teacher said to me. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. And what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometimes. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. And what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that war is not so bad I learned about the great ones we have had We fought in Germany and in France And someday I might get my chance And that's what I learned in school today That's what I learned in school And what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong It's always right and never wrong Our leaders are the finest men And we elect them again and again And that's what I learned in school today That's what I learned in school My next guest is Gary Knight. He was a war photographer for 20 years covering numerous war-torn countries. He's the co-founder of the Seven Foundation and the editor of this new book, Imagine, Reflections on Peace, 
which focuses on Bosnia and Herzegovina, Cambodia, Colombia, Lebanon, Northern Ireland, and Rwanda to illustrate the difficult work being done to break the foundational cycles of conflict and violence that has marked each country's immediate history. So, Gary Knight, welcome. Thank you. Very, very nice to be here. Thank you, Tony. So, to begin with, what is the Seven Foundation? Why did you create it? And what do you hope to achieve by it? So the Seven Foundation has two purposes. One is to provide a tuition-free education to young men and women from the majority world, so Latin America, Africa, Asia, Middle East, in journalism to underpin stable societies, peaceful societies in their own countries. And the other is to tackle very, very complex issues that we're all confronting today that the media probably won't tackle in the same way because they're you know, often multi-year projects and multi-platform projects. So, so the foundation raises to investigate issues, human rights issues, environmental issues, etc. So in this country, I think we tend to take peace for granted. What do you think most people don't understand about peace and why peace is so fragile, so difficult to attain, and then so difficult to maintain? I think taking peace for granted is very dangerous. And I think actually there's a lot to learn from these post-conflict societies for America today and for, for many European countries. Peace is very hard to make, and we often look at the end of warfare, the cessation of hostilities as the end game. And when we negotiate peace processes, we you know, pat each other on the back and go home. But the hard work really begins, you know, once the ink is drying. And making or maintaining peace is an extraordinarily difficult process. And it takes an awful lot of hard work and commitment over decades, if not generations. And it requires massive political will and an awful lot of courage on the part of participants in war, perpetrators of crimes, victims, etc. And it's very, very difficult for most societies to really sustain the concentration and the effort that is required. And there are very few peace processes that have actually been successful, as we found in the book. Why is it so difficult? I think, you know, we don't create adequate conditions for peace. So, for example, we're not very good at creating adequate conditions for peace. So a lot of governments try and enrich themselves once, you know, peace comes. Not everybody is allowed into the political process. For example, there is an inadequate justice, almost no truce and reconciliation. And what we found, if you take Rwanda as perhaps the most obvious example, is if you have the participation of women in government in post-conflict societies, peace is much more likely to be robust. If you have a truce and reconciliation committee, even in a country like Rwanda where you have had a devastating genocide, you have a possibility of forgiveness, of reconciliation of people moving forward. Without that, even if you have a criminal tribunal, being successful is, is severely diminished. You need to have open dialogue and an awful lot of political will for decades, not just months and years. And these conditions just don't exist in most countries. And so peace, although if we measure its success by the cessation of hostilities, we can say that you know, peace in all of these countries has been successful. 
if you measure its success by the well-being of the citizens of these countries, I think you can say in most of these countries it has been an abject failure. You mentioned the role of women in peacemaking and peace building. Yeah. What do women bring to the table that is different, that brings better results? What you see in Cambodia, for example, is you know, women are, I don't want to make generalizations about women, but women tend to be, in political structures, much more community-minded. And that has a very big effect on the ability of broken societies to repair. And in societies like Bosnia, for example, or Cambodia, where you don't have the participation of women in government and in, politi- in political life, peace has been quite unsuccessful. In Rwanda, a lot of NGOs understood that when they were investing in communities, when they were putting money into communities, if they gave it to the men, the man of the family, it would very often be spent on himself. And if they gave it to the women, it would be spent on the children and in the community at large. I think there are an awful lot of lessons to be learned just from that. And women, from what we can see in this project, are much, much more open to dialogue and often will act as a bridge between warring factions of men. But they are generally excluded, both from peace processes, from the making of peace, and from the management of peace afterwards. So talk more about the importance of reconciliation and forgiveness in peace negotiations and peace building, and define what you mean in practical terms what reconciliation is and forgiveness in these contexts? Well, Philip Gurevich's piece in the book is really illuminating here, and he has multiple examples. But in Rwanda, one of the perpetrators of crimes, Emmanuel, that Philip writes about, is trapped by his guilt. He cannot move forward. And for him to move forward, he needs to confess. And, and so he has an absolutely burning need to progress, to be able to confess his crimes and to seek forgiveness. Similarly, there's a woman called Alice that Philip interviews in the book, who was a victim of Emmanuel. Emmanuel chopped off her arm and killed her family during the genocide. She is also trapped by the memories of the violence, by the genocide, by the loss of her family. And she and Emmanuel are neighbors. They live in the same village. They see each other every day. For both of them to move forward and to build a stable society, they both needed to go through the process of truth and reconciliation, of openness, of dialogue. It doesn't erase the past, of course, but it does allow people to go forward. And if people can't go forward, and if they're constantly looking backwards, as you see very often, for example, in Bosnia, peace won't be successful. Stability will never be found. So practically... In most of these countries, there has been some process of justice. You know, criminal tribunals have been imposed, but largely they have been unsuccessful. Largely, not in all cases, but largely they have been unsuccessful. And the number of indictments versus the number of crimes is is embarrassingly low. At the grassroots level, when you have courts inside villages, hearings inside villages, the process is quite simplistic, it's quite fast, but it has tremendous effect. The effectiveness of a, of a village court, of a gachacha court in Rwanda, I would argue, is much more impactful than, than a criminal tribunal. So they used a much more grassroots reconciliation process in Rwanda 
talk about how that compares with, I think, what you called the accountability and reconciliation process in Cambodia, how it differed from that, and also the attempts to do that in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and the differing results. Sure. So in Cambodia, you know, you had between 1.2 million and approximately 3 million people were killed in the genocide. You had 360,000 people were displaced across the border, mostly into Thailand. And the tribunal has indicted five people and convicted four. In Bosnia, you had a death count of approximately 100,000. You had 1.8 million displaced. You had 161 people indicted and 90 convicted. In Rwanda, you had almost 4 million people displaced, almost a million killed. You had 1.9 million people indicted by these Kadacha courts and 1.4 million convicted. And, you know, that's a glaring difference, an absolutely glaring difference. So what happens with the criminal tribunals, which are international organizations, you tend to have a lot of political interference. So in Cambodia, the current leader of Cambodia, a former Khmer Rouge commander, refused to allow the tribunal to do its work and to indict men who, frankly, were other former members of the same organization, the Khmer Rouge. So, you know, the international tribunals are often interfered with, sometimes by, you know, for example, the International Criminal Tribunal is, a, is an organization that the United States refuses to participate in. But grassroots courts have their legitimacy from small communities, and they are effective. And the number of men who voluntarily, the number of perpetrators who voluntarily go to the courts is enormous. And so the process of healing can begin there. And I think that's just absolutely paramount in any successful peace process, justice and healing. I find that very puzzling that it worked so much better in Rwanda. I mean, we're talking about human beings who who have the same needs for reconciliation and mental health, you know, internal reconciliation of violence and guilt and shame and and all the other effects of violence. Even in Cambodia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, there were examples of people finding reconciliation and forgiveness with other people at the grassroots level. Why did it work in Rwanda, but not in these other places? I mean, often the grassroots level of things don't, don't filter up to the, to the national level. I think it worked in Rwanda because you had the political will from the top. Mm. For a start, you have a dictator, albeit a relatively benign dictator, not totally, but relatively. But he had the political will to make this happen. And in Cambodia, you certainly don't. You have the opposite. And in Bosnia, you have the opposite. So, you know, the criminal tribunal for, for former Yugoslavia has been undermined by state actors in the former Yugoslavia. So the process in the tribunal itself is perfectly fine. But the court itself is frequently undermined in Bosnia and Serbia and, and, and in the territories of former Yugoslavia. So you don't have the political will. And that is what is absolutely necessary. It's strong, good leadership. Mm-hmm. So what are the other most essential elements for achieving a successful peace? 
as we discussed, I think, a little earlier, the participation of women in the peace process is fundamental. You know, it's absolutely critical. The desire for peace from within, if you impose peace from the outside, it will generally fail. And a long-term commitment, both from outside actors, so from powerful countries in Europe, the United States, for example, China, Russia, to commit to supporting countries that are coming out of conflict for a long period of time through investment and dialogue, etc. Uh, I think these things are you know, absolutely critical. And then a commitment by political forces within these countries to focus on peace and make conditions inside the country that are beneficial to peace for a very long period and understand that peace isn't made overnight. It will take decades at the very least. So I noticed, or at least it appeared to me, that there were some striking parallels between what happened in Rwanda and what is actually happening here in this country right now. I would love to hear your thoughts on yes. that. Yes, I thought a lot about that in the last few weeks, and I think there are parallels, and I think, moreover, there's a lot that America can learn from, ironically, Rwanda. And I think if we learn that bravery isn't facing off your opponent, bravery is sitting down with your opponent across the table and finding common ground, right? If we redefine what courage and bravery can be, that would be a really great start. And understanding that you know, everybody has more to reap from peace and stability than from conflict is really, really critical. And also a process of truth and reconciliation. And I don't think America has really gone through that process. And I think there is a reckoning that needs to be done in America. And I think a process of openness and forgiveness would be a very useful process to go through at a grassroots level, maybe state by state, town by town, community by community. But I think, you know, if you take uh, Minneapolis, for example, a lot could be done if you had, you know, members from law enforcement agencies sitting down with the community and engaging in a dialogue and understanding that that dialogue might need to go on for months, if not years. But uh, I think that in the United States and in European countries as well, where there's also a lot of political polarization and division, there is much to be learned from Rwanda and from other countries that have experienced violent civil war in recent times. And one of the key parallels was that sectarian hatred and violence was stirred up from the political top. And the same thing is now occurring here in the U.S. And the consequences of that are generally completely overlooked. It's a failure of leadership, right? Yeah. Obviously at a national level. But I think that, you know, leadership at a community level can succeed. And in many of these countries, again, Rwanda is a great example. I think Northern Ireland is also a very good example. Community leaders, people in civil society can assume those roles and often going to be much more successful, actually, at bringing warring factions together. So in an absence or with an absence of leadership, successful leadership on the, on the national stage, community leaders need to you know, take up the baton from a grassroots level. Hmm. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and this is such a powerful and eye-opening book. Thank you so much, and be well. Thank you for having me, Tony. A great pleasure to, to be with you. Thank you. Gary Knight 
was a war photographer for 20 years, covering numerous war-torn countries. He's the co-founder of the Seven Foundation and the editor of this new book, Imagine, Reflections on Peace, which focuses on Bosnia and Herzegovina, Cambodia, Colombia, Lebanon, Northern Ireland, and Rwanda to illustrate the difficult work being done to break the foundational cycles of conflict and violence that has marked each country's immediate history. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.